to the 14th, we'll be having the Chafer Conference. So be in preparation for that. Uh, some have already heard. You know, if you're going to make it have a mistake, that's going to be the first thing you hear about. And, uh, of course, Mike Wells isn't here tonight, but uh, uh, Mike took one of the brochures there, which is a slightly outdated brochure since Dan Ingram's been taken off the uh, thing. But, of course, the announcement was made about the conference. They read the speakers, including Dan's name, and I got a call from Dan on my way here saying, I heard my name was announced and taken in vain by KHCB in Houston this week. So uh, kind of rearrange things. One of the things that will be exciting is on Wednesday... I'm still finalizing the schedule, but Wednesday's pretty set because of all the speakers there have specific needs. But on Wednesday after after the conference, I mean the Wednesday of the conference, after lunch, there will be a panel group with uh, Charlie Clough, John Eidsmo, uh, Jeff Atticott, and um, Andy Woods. And so we're going to have three lawyers and three... Uh, theologians, so there's overlap there, and we're going to talk about all kinds of questions related to history of Christianity in the United States, uh, <clears throat> legal issues facing the church, and of course, if you're paying attention, uh, this thing, this email I sent out last week that Charlie had forwarded to me related to what held the, these uh, dictates from the uh, uh, <clears throat> Health and Human Services. Uh, department regarding uh, mandating all religious institutions, uh, except for a very narrowly uh, identified group, are going to have to participate in the new socialist health care pol- plan and policy because the new socialist health care plan and policy just won't be able to fund itself anyway. But it won't be able to fund itself unless they can get everybody to uh, participate, which uh, has to do with birth control issues and other things, which isn't the real I mean, that's the surface issue, but the real issue, the real issue is the First Amendment and uh, the freedom of churches and religious groups to maintain their beliefs and practices. And these are well-established beliefs. This isn't some group that comes up and says uh, at the last minute that they have a certain belief. Uh, These are well-established beliefs, and the federal government is coming in and uh, forcing them to uh, fund things that they don't believe in. And that is, if the camel's nose gets under that tent, then we, we're all looking at concentration camps in the near future within 20 years. Because that's exactly the kind of pattern that happened in, under the Soviets. It's the same kind of pattern that happened under the Nazis. And once the federal government gets to decide where the boundaries are or the limitations related to the First Amendment, uh, that that is what opens the door to the loss of all other, almost all other freedoms. So uh, we need to really uh, be involved in in this whole issue and pay attention to it because it is, it is, uh, it's crucial. Uh, So those are the announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, 
Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can uh, make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to focus on the teaching of the Word. I uh, also want to remind you, uh, if you don't, most of you probably don't know this, yesterday David Roseland started teaching a module on Bible study methods to the students over in Kiev. I don't always know who's teaching there or what they're teaching, but I do with David, so we can be in prayer for him. This is I didn't get a chance to talk to him this afternoon to find out how it went. It was his first time to have a go with an interpreter. So he's uh, having a good learning experience over there. So we can be in prayer for uh, a prayer for him this, this week and next. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that you have revealed to us who you are, who we are, and how we can have a relationship with you, that you are the one who defines reality. You are the one who has communicated objectively to us that we might come to understand the nature of reality. And you have communicated to us in a way in which we can understand it, and the only time it becomes confusing is when we seek to suppress the truth in unrighteousness and we seek to uh, redefine what you have revealed because it doesn't match some preconceived notion that we have, or some assumption that we have, or some uh, belief that we want to hold more dear than your word. And so, Father, we pray that as we study this evening, you'll help us to uh, understand important issues related to the uh, death of Christ on the cross, as well as how it has been distorted down through the ages and used to justify much horror in terms of Christian anti-Semitism. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, tonight I want to look at this topic I touched on briefly last time as we got into uh, the uh, latter half of Acts chapter 5. And we got down through um, to about verse 32. And in the last uh, three or four verses there, we get again the situation where Peter and the apostles have been arrested and they've been brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, uh, the high priest again confronts them. This would be Annas at this particular time and again confronted them with the fact that they had been ordered not to uh, teach in the uh, in this name, and that's interesting how he puts it that way, because among Orthodox Jewish rabbis, there are, there's a group, a segment that will never mention the name of Jesus. They always refer to him as that man or that one, and so this has a tradition going back to uh, Annas, the high priest here, and uh, <clears throat> so there's this command uh, <clears throat> and this accusation. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and or your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That was the accusation. You intend to blame us. And that wasn't their intent at all, not the apostles. Uh, blame goes where blame was deserved in terms of them as particular individuals, but not as a, as a collective whole. And it is that issue that I touched on last time 
And as I was reflecting upon what I would teach tonight, I thought, well, maybe I should revisit it a little bit. And I did some research and decided I needed to revisit it a lot because this is an issue that has a, a real minefield of historical and theological revisionism. It is one that is extremely emotional for some people, especially a Jewish audience, this question of who killed Jesus, because this is the issue that lies at the very very root of Christian anti-Semitism, which sadly and unfortunately characterized uh, much of the first uh, 1,500 years of Christianity, it, not in the first century, but it developed in the early to mid part of the second century. At least the seeds were sown during that period, and then it produced, it began to produce its poison by the end of the uh, fourth century and into the fifth century and characterized, uh, as I said, much of Christianity down through the Protestant Reformation and continued within the Roman Catholic tradition for us uh, up until recently, and it uh, was gradually expunged from the Protestant tradition. And I make that distinction because uh, in a a Jewish audience, in the Jewish community, and the Jewish uh, writers that I read on this subject uh, do not seem to me to really understand the distinctions, important distinctions between Protestant theology and especially evangelical uh, beliefs and Roman Catholic beliefs. And from their perspective, we're all just Christians, Catholic, Mormon, Protestant, Evangelical, Charismatic. Some of this they don't ever, ever uh, understand. And as one, uh, one sort of uh, street story goes, when the question is asked, what do Jews think about Jesus? The answer is they never think about Jesus. What do Jews know about Christians? Nothing. They don't care. They don't ever think about Christians. So that we can understand where they're coming from. And so when uh, some of these things come up that have been at the very root of much, much horror and suffering and, and torture uh, down through the ages, that we can have a measure of sympathy for why they react uh, the way we do. Uh, there was uh, the title that I want to give this in its full sense is Who Killed Jesus? Lies and Myths, Ancient and Modern. This whole discussion is filled with revisionism, biblical revisionism, theological revisionism, uh, historical revisionism. It's ancient and modern. The early second century Christians began to revise uh, aspects of the New Testament and misinterpret it because they brought in a non-literal interpretation. And while in a general sense it is true that the early church generally had a literal interpretation, it was a mixed bag. There were, it, was, it wasn't thought through consistently. And there were elements of allegory then, and that allegory really comes to a horrible fruition under, under the church fathers of origin in the... Um, uh, early 300s, and later under uh, Augustine, who was the uh, Bishop of Hippo, and he lived from approximately uh, 370 or 380 to about 430. So it's and he basically institutionalizes a non-literal interpretation. Now I'm, I'm making that point early. 
because as I go through this material, I think that we can really resolve the issue, and it would have been resolved and stayed resolved from the early first century if people had just consistently taken the text at face value. But when people begin to allegorize the text and spiritualize the text and get away from that literal meaning, then what happens is you get into all kinds of uh, just horrible, horrible interpretations because they have really truly slipped the anchor to any guideline to protect them from from uh, serious error. So you had revisionism on the part of early 2nd century Christians. Uh, medieval Christians took it to whole new levels. And um, modern historical and theological revisionism has continued, but now it comes under the guise of liberal Protestants and liberal Roman Catholics who are burdened by uh, guilt over what their Christian ancestors did. And so they swing the pendulum completely in the opposite direction. And uh, Jewish writers tend to pick up on whatever... whatever uh, <clears throat> uh, Protestants say negatively, liberal Protestant theologians or liberal Catholic theologians say negatively about uh, the historic accuracy of the Bible because their their battle is to just uh, basically uh, destroy the veracity of Christianity. And so they're going to use any ammunition they can get, sort of like Democrats or Republicans in this in this. Um, primary season, listen to their uh, opponents as they're battling it out on the other side of the aisle, and uh, they don't know which one's going to end up being their opponent in November, so they will learn the various charges that are being brought against the, the from one side to the other in the primary, and then whichever one wins, uh, they'll learn from his opponent all of his bad points, and then they'll uh, use that in the in the um, main election in the fall, and that's sort of how the Jews do this: is they hear they see uh, liberal liberal Protestants and liberal Christians attack the veracity of the Word of God, and they just pick up whatever argument. Uh, they hear that sounds good, and then they adapt it to their to their use, which is completely understandable uh, in terms of a debate technique. So what we see is that the evidence is completely distorted by a failure to interpret the Scripture uh, literally and to assume that the, that the writers of Scripture are who they say they are and are doing what they say they are, they are doing. So to answer this question... Uh, what I want to do is to look at the historical evidence that is included in the New Testament books, and we need to assume that the historical evidence that's presented there is truthful and honest, that they were writing when they said they were writing, and therefore there were people around who were eyewitnesses to the events that they were recording and would have called them on it if they were misrepresenting the truth or misrepresenting the uh, the, the facts. In liberal Protestant theology, uh, coming out of the 19th century, it was assumed that none of the people who claimed who were believed to have written the Gospels wrote the Gospels. Mark didn't write. And th- these were just names that were added later on to give these uh, these stories that were eventually written down some measure of, of, of credibility, but they were actually written into the second century and not by eyewitnesses. And you will find that some of the Roman Catholic theologians that you read on this or some of the uh, uh, Jewish writers that you read on this uh, ex- accept this view that that uh, Peter and Mark and 
and uh, Matthew and Luke and, and John didn't really write those Gospels. They were written much, much later, and so we really can't trust what's, uh, what, what's there. And then on the other hand, you'll find a couple of rabbis like I did who say, well, we all know that Paul wrote uh, all of his epistles within 20 to 30 years of the death of Jesus. Okay, well, which is it? See, that's what I mean. They're just they're going to pick whatever argument they can that they think can work for them in in uh, attacking the uh, Christian uh, truth claims. So we have to assume that these books are written by the men that that we history and tradition have said wrote them when they wrote them, and that unless there is clear and compelling evidence to the contrary. Second thing we have to assume is that the uh, that we have to do is that we have to interpret the Gospels according to the normal rules of language, usage, and meaning. This is generally referred to as a literal interpretation, where you interpret the Scripture according to the normal uses of, of, of language. You can't come in and create, as we'll see, a sort of this di- dichotomy of language. Well, this is religious language, so we're going to treat it very differently than if it was uh, historical. And I'll, I'll, if we get there, I'll show you some, or read some examples of that kind of uh, distortion and false dichotomy uh, to you. So we have to assume that that we're going to interpret literally they mean what they say and we can understand it in a literal sense. Third we ha- thing we have to do is to treat the, the witnesses of the Gospels and Acts as a unified, non-contradictory whole. In other words, you can't come in with a razor blade and take one phrase or one sentence out of context in one one place and say and do the same thing with a phrase somewhere else and say, see, there's a contradiction here. We have to look at things within their context, and we have to assume that the writers of Scripture weren't stupid, that they understood what they were writing, and that what may appear to us to be a contradiction or a discrepancy uh, can, can be un, uh, perhaps explained if we had a little more information if we thought about it in a different sense, in other words, start by giving them the benefit of the doubt and seeing if there can be a resolution to the apparent conflict rather than uh, starting with the assumption that they don't know what they're talking about, that they were making this up, and it just can't possibly be true. And that is the assumption of liberal theology. The assumption of liberal theology is that God can't reveal himself to us because we can't understand it. Everybody who writes within a liberal framework is, is writing on this side of Immanuel Kant where you can't know truth, you can only know perceptions. So there's no objective truth. So they, from the get-go, their uh, knowledge, uh, their philosophy of knowledge or epistemology is, uh, has been amputated from the source of objective truth. So they don't think you can get there, so they're not going to assume that, that to be true. Whereas as a Christian, we assume truth is, there is objective truth and it's knowable, and that the writers of Scripture are intelligent and represent truth, and they're going to assume that truth isn't knowable and they don't represent truth and nothing in the Bible is what, what it literally claims to be. That's why we have difficulty communicating. So what we need is a measure of object, objectivity and clarity, which I hope to <clears throat> you can see in, as I approach this. I want to look at first in terms of the historic problems, second in terms of the biblical testimony, third in terms of some of the uh, histor- early historical testimony, and then uh, pull it together with the, uh, a theological uh, rationale. When you look at this particular topic, 
you realize that it is one that is uh, um, of contemporary significance. In 2004, just eight years ago, Mel Gibson came out with the film The Passion of the Christ, and if you remember, there was a lot of, of hubbub about the fact that this was going to uh, resurrect um, re- resurrect uh, Christian anti-Semitism and the charge of deicide, which means the murder of God, which is a contradictory term. You, God, by definition, can't be murdered. So this is just an absurd idea that you could kill God. Um, and there were a lot of Jews who were extremely concerned, and there was a lot of things that came out of the um, uh, <clears throat> the Anti-Defamation League, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, that was v- extremely concerned about how the Jews were presented in the um, the film The Passion of the Christ. Uh, Abe Foxman, who is the national director of the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, made the statement that for almost 2,000 years, Four words rationalized, fueled, and justified anti-Semitism. The Jews killed Jesus. Now, there's something you might not know about Abe Foxman that is uh, interesting. He was the only son of Polish Jews. He was born uh, in uh, Nazi-occupied uh, Poland uh, in an area that is now part of uh, Belarus, and when his parents were taken off to the camps, he was uh, he was taken in by his Roman Catholic nanny. Now, I'm making a distinction here between Roman Catholics and Protestants because it's really important to understand those distinctions. Roman Catholics historically have taught, have bought into a non-literal interpretation, and at the very core of Roman Catholic theology, despite any claims to the contrary recently, they hold to a replacement theology that the Jews lost whatever promises God made to the Jewish people when they rejected Jesus as a Messiah, and those promises are now being, going to be given uh, to the church spiritually. And the replacement theology is really the seedbed of all uh, Christian anti, anti-Semitism. And uh, Abe Foxman makes the comment that he, he knew he was loved, by his uh, Roman Catholic nanny, she made sure he was baptized, that he was uh, a member of the Ro- Roman Catholic Church and all of those things and uh, treated him well. But when he says that when he disobeyed her, she called him Judas. It's that inherent anti-Semitism. But that came out of her Roman Catholic training and heritage, which has has for centuries had this this strain of uh, anti-Semitism. But when he tells the story, he just tells the story of her as a Christian, which reveals that he doesn't understand the core difference between her as a Roman Catholic Christian and evangelical Protestants who uh, should not, and in most cases would not, even though there are uh, probably about 20 or 30 percent of evangelical uh, evangelicals have been infected by replacement uh, replacement theology. <clears throat> Michael Rydelnik, who's the head of the uh, Jewish Studies Department at, at Moody Bible Institute, was is is the son of Holocaust survivors, and they came to the United States after World War II to uh, find safety and security. And he tells a story of his older brother, who, when he was a young boy attending school. Uh, had his eye put out by some Christian kid who threw a rock at him and called him a Christ killer. 
That was in the early 1950s. So anti-Semitism and this kind of horrible uh, anti-Semitism is still with us today. It is based on the charge that the Jews and the Jews alone were responsible for the death of Christ. And uh, this idea, as I said earlier, can be traced back to the early to mid-2nd century. It's the basic deicide charge that they murdered God, that um, this really became mainstreamed into uh, what became known, what became Roman Catholic theology by Augustine of Hippo, who said that it was the Jews that put the nails in, in his hands and the sword in his side. Augustine said that all Jews all over the world in all generations crucified Jesus. That later developed into the pernicious view that the Jews were corporately guilty of the death of Christ, every single Jew, and therefore every single Jew got whatever they deserved if they went through any any suffering. And it wasn't until the early 60s in Vatican II that the Roman Catholic Church began to uh, recognize the error of its ways and back away from uh, the deicide charge. Now, this concept of Jewish collective responsibility for the death of Jesus has its foundation in a scripture text, Matthew 27, 25, where Pilate is turning Jesus over to the to the uh, Jewish mob, and they say, "His blood be upon us and on our children." Now, the, Matt, this text is not teaching that God said that Christ's blood is on them and their children. Now, three things that we should note here: first of all, only God can invoke a curse biblically. Only God can bring about that kind of judgment. People can't. It doesn't matter what they said. That was just a an emotional statement that crowd made on that historic day. It never should have been taken to apply to anything else. That was a failure on the part of the early church in terms of bringing in a non-literal uh, hermeneutic or non-literal interpretation. Uh, second, God never endorsed this curse. It's never endorsed anywhere uh, in the in the uh, New Testament, in fact, Jesus said of those who sacrificed him when he prayed to the Father, Father, uh, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus never called upon his followers to curse the Jews. He never cursed those who crucified him. He simply prayed that God would forgive them. And the third point is that we know from Scripture is that biblically, children cannot be held ac- accountable or punished for their parents' sins. It violates the whole principle of personal responsibility as laid down in the first three chapters of, of genocide. But now in the modern context, we have an equal and just as horrible a, a reaction to the horrors that began in the early church. It is now claimed by skeptics and both the Protestant as well as Roman Catholic revisionists the claim that uh, the believers in the early church were uh, didn't write these things down right away, and over time they shifted the blame for the crucifixion from Pilate, uh, who according to this new revisionism today actually wanted Jesus dead, uh, to the, quote, the Jews. 
Since uh, the Jews were not popular in Rome, they became convenient scapegoats. That's the new mythology. Uh, this same shift, that is, from Pilate to blaming the Jews, uh, <clears throat> they claim is at the uh, undergirds everything in the Gospels, which have really been uh, whitewashed. So that Pilate's role on uh, Good Friday uh, was uh, is is kind of gl- uh, glanced over, and instead the Jews are the ones who are blamed for indicting Jesus. So uh, as time developed in the first three or four centuries of Christianity. Uh, this guilt was then applied to all non-Christian Jews. Now, this is a very important point um, that I want to make and emphasize. I don't know if I'll get there in, in time tonight, but um, behind a lot of modern attempts to address this issue uh, from the liberal Roman Catholic revisionist to Jewish revisionist is a view of the New Testament as sort of a patchwork quilt that's put together uh, by the followers of Jesus from oral tradition over a period of 100 to 150 years. Now, that idea, as I said earlier, came out of 19th century Protestant liberalism. But in the early 60s, by a uh, 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 liberal theologian by the name of John A.T. Robinson, uh, who is al- also wrote a book called Honest to God, where he was sort of promoting the death of God, uh, he wrote another book on the writings of the New Testament, and here this liberal is forced by the discoveries of archaeology to to redate all the books of the New Testament, and he redates them earlier than any traditional conservative evangelical would date them. He puts them a little bit too early uh, in the first first century, but but we still have a lot of scholars today who hold on to things that were put out in the 19th century that are outdated and don't fit archaeology anymore. But it it makes them comfortable. It's their tool for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and so you hear these things uh, uh, regurgitated by people who've never really studied them. They've just heard it on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, to make this view of the New Testament work. You have to do to the New Testament exactly what Christians wrongly did to the Jewish people for centuries. You have to torture it, persecute it, distort it, and murder it. And it's not justified to do that to the Jewish people, and it's not justified to do that to the New Testament. We have to have a higher view of the uh, early uh, Christians than to think of them in such a low light. Now, in uh, <clears throat> recently, or in 1990, Uh, Paul Meyer, who's a Christian scholar, wrote an article for Christianity Today called Who Killed Jesus? When he began that article, he said, he quoted Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, who made the statement, in its effect upon the life of the Jewish people, Christianity's New Testament has been the most dangerous anti-Semitic tract in history. I would suggest that level of libel and distortion is just as foul and unacceptable as any form of anti-Semitism. It's just as wrong, and wrong is wrong. His opinion, though, is shared by a lot of modern, multicultural, sensitive, uh, liberal, postmodern Christian theologians who, along with many in the Jewish community, uh, claim that... uh, Parts of the New Testament need to be taken out. They're uh, 
advocating the exclusion of the Gospel of John because it always refers to the Jewish leadership as the Jews, and this is uh, anti-Semitic in their view. And in the late 80s, that uh, arrogant group of scholars known as the Jesus Seminar, you know, these are the ones that had their little five coloring pens, and they would go through the Gospels and color uh, the things that they were sure Jesus said, the things that they were sure he didn't say, the things that he might have said or might not have said, and the things that they weren't sure about. And um, very few things passed muster for them so that uh, they believed that they were actually things that Jesus would have or could have said. And what they're doing is just taking their preconceived notions of what they think Jesus should have been and imposing that upon the text. And anything that didn't fit that, they got rid of. Um, uh, this has also been picked up within the Jewish community. There are a number of Jews that think that there needs to be a complete rethought of the crucifixion because the Jews really didn't have anything to do with Jesus' crucifixion either. See, that's just the typical action and reaction where you go all the way to the opposite extreme and neither of which is, uh, is very good. Uh, Roy Eckhart, who's an emeritus professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, even suggested that Christians should abandon the resurrection of Jesus since it remains a, quote, primordial and unceasing source of the Christian world's anti-Judaism. Isn't that insane? I mean, they're, they're not, how can they in any sense be called Christian? It's just, just beyond me. So we see today that, that on the one extreme, you still have anti-Semites who want to blame the Jews for everything. And on the other hand, you have uh, people who want to say, well, the Jews didn't have anything to do with it whatsoever. And this would include a um, former Supreme Court justice in Israel who wrote a well-known book in the Jewish community called The Trial and Death of Jesus. It was even a book that uh, former Prime Minister or the late Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin gave to uh, President Jimmy Carter back in the in the 70s. In that book, Cohen said that Annas and Caiaphas, instead of being Jesus' antagonists, were really his dear friends, and that it was all the horrible Romans and Pilate who were behind Jesus' Jesus' crucifixion. But see, what they've done is they've said we want to be historical. But we can't listen to the Gospels because that's not a historical document. They, they've made this bifurcation between the secular and the sacred. And, and if it's sacred, if it's religious, then it can't have any truth in it except just some sort of feel-good emotional meaning that's pure Kantianism. So what happened historically was in the early church, and uh, we have an early church father named Justin Martyr, who died in 165, and one of his more well-known writings that survived was called The Dialogue with Trifo, who was a Jew who was also being uh, rejected by... He had become a Christian, and he was also being persecuted uh, by uh, the synagogue. Uh, the same level of hostility directed towards him as we see directed towards Jesus in the Gospel accounts and towards James, the, uh, the leader of the church in, uh, in Jerusalem, who is uh, going to be uh, martyred under um, under Herod Antipas? Um, Melito of Sardis, who died in 180, the Bishop of Smyrna, added that uh, they killed God. He was the first to bring the charge of deicide against the Jews, as if it were possible to kill God. Uh, by uh, 400, approximately, Augustine. 
basically institutionalizes the view that the Jewish people are like Cain, who killed his brother Abel. Uh, Cain had a mark. God put a mark on Cain's head so he would wander the earth but never be killed. So God was putting a mark, according to Augustine, on the Jews, and they would perpetually wander the earth and never disappear because they had killed Jesus. They would perpetually suffer. In the 4th century, approximately the same time as Augustine, you have in the Eastern Church, uh, one of their primary saints that they still uh, genuflect to, uh, John Chrysostom. Chrysostom in Greek means golden mouth. He's considered one of the greatest preachers of the early church. And even today his sermons are memorized and preached by Eastern Orthodox priests. He wrote six sermons against the Jews, and they made... Uh, consistently made statements like this, quote, the Jews are the odious assassins of Christ, and for killing God there is no expiation possible, no indulgence, no pardon. Christians may never cease uh, seeking vengeance, and the Jews must live in servitude forever. God always hated the Jews. It's incumbent upon all Christians to hate the Jews. And that's just some of the milder stuff that was preached under the guise of Christianity. Why? Because they lost literal interpretation. And so they, they misinterpreted, misapplied uh, the scriptures. As a result of this, there were many myths and lies that were developed about the Jews in the Middle Ages, one of which was a blood libel, the idea that on Good Friday the Jews would kidnap and murder Christian children and use their blood to... Uh, uh, make pa- Passover matzah. Also, they would say that the Jews would go into the, would sneak into the uh, uh, the churches on Good Friday and steal the host that the uh, Roman Catholics use in the Mass, and they would take it home and stab it until it would bleed. They uh, <clears throat> accuse the uh, uh, Jews also of many, many other things in terms of uh, the desecration of churches and the desecration of, of Christ. Uh, this blood libel is still found in some areas of Eastern Europe and in some areas and in Muslim countries where it is often taught that at Passover and at uh, Purim and other times uh, the Jews go out and kidnap and kill uh Arab babies to use their blood in making their uh, their pastries, and of course this does nothing to uh, make them uh, <clears throat> pleasing in the sight of the Jews. They are justifiably outraged at being called Christ killers, and the Bible never says that. In fact, what the Bible does say is that the death of Christ was the result of a conspiracy of guilt that is completely controlled and under the authority of God and God's plan, and that ultimately it is God who allowed this, and it was his plan for Jesus to be killed in this manner so that redemption could be accomplished. So rather than being upset about the death of Christ and who killed Jesus, Christians would rather rejoice that he was killed in this manner And it doesn't really matter what humans were involved because by crucifying Jesus, our sins were paid for and redemption uh, was accomplished. In the New Testament, we have the blame spread to everybody. Uh, I'm going to look at a few passages, first of all, that talk about Roman and Gentile involvement. 
In Luke 18, 31 to 32, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And Luke records, Then he took the twelve aside and said to him, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. See, there it is the Gentiles who are responsible, but Mark makes it even more clear in his gospel. In Mark 10, 33 and 34, Mark says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. And we know that was by Judas. But Judas was operating as an individual. He is not a representative in any way, shape, or form of the Jewish people. Uh, we betrayed by Judas. He will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they, that is the Gentiles, will mock him and will scourge him and spit upon him and kill him. That is the Roman soldiers that did this. They mocked him and scourged him and spit upon him and killed him. So Jesus in his statement makes it clear that there's a large measure of Roman culpability. We answer the question here, who killed Jesus? For, who killed Jesus? First it's Judas, then it's the uh, chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders, not the Jewish people themselves, but the religious leaders. And third, uh, it's the Romans. They're all equally culpable. In Acts 4.27, sandwiched sandwich between the statement that Peter made to the Sanhedrin in Acts, or earlier in Acts 4 where he said, this man you crucified, and Acts chapter 5 where Peter says, um, uh, says once again that, that, and accused the Sanhedrin again of, uh, of, uh, crucifying Jesus. Uh, in verse 30 of 530, uh, Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And actually, Peter, we don't know that Peter said this, because if we carefully read the text, it says, and, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said. And what we have after that is a, a, an exact rendering of different things that were said, but it's attributed to the group, so we don't know who said what part of that within the group, but this is what the group said. So we can't say that Peter said it or he or or he didn't. But sandwiched between this we have that great prayer of uh, Acts four that I that we studied. And in the midst of that prayer, even though it doesn't say specifically who prayed, it was probably Peter uh, as the leader. And in Acts four twenty seven and twenty eight he prays for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Herod is half Jewish and half Edomite, so he's the first one that's culpable in this verse. Uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. So there's enough blame to go around to everybody, but primarily in that prayer, the blame is put on Herod and Pontius Pilate as the ultimate authorities of, of uh, each group. But ultimately, it is God. They, they made the decision, to, but it was the actual implementation of what God had purposed uh, before to be done. When we get into uh, the passages of the Gospels that deal with the trial itself, we find that uh, Pontius Pilate uh, uh, interviews Jesus three times, 
And he comes up with this claim that I find no fault in you. Luke 23, 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. In Luke 23, 14, he said, you've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. Uh, but then, in verse 24, Pilate gave, gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And so he yields to them, and he washes his hands, but no amount of washing can absolve him of the guilt of his passive decision when he had the authority that he could have easily uh, stopped this. But um, we must understand a little bit about the background that is going on here as well. For uh, uh, Sejanus, who was one of the... Um, um, uh, one of the right-hand leaders in Rome to the emperor Tiberius had been discovered to be a traitor against Tiberius. Pilate had been sponsored by Sejanus, and Pilate was in a position this particular time that if he did anything that might be viewed by someone in authority in Rome as not uh, going the full length to protect the uh, security of the Roman Empire, then uh, then uh, Pilate would probably lose his life. And so Pilate is highly motivated to make sure that anyone who is even uh, uh, superficially a threat to the Roman Empire is going to be taken out of the way. And so uh, Pilate acquiesces, but he is just as guilty. In fact, he's even more guilty because of his position um, of authority, and so he has Jesus whipped. And then uh, there are further indictments that come against Pilate because of his character and other things that we know of him from uh, from Josephus uh, and others. We also know that um, uh, the Jewish people in general were not against Jesus. Matthew 26, 3 through 4, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. That's the lead, religious leaders. But they said, listen to what they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They understood that the people were pro-Jesus, and that if they did things the wrong way, then they could have an insurrection on their hands. So this is the Gospels are a long way from giving an indictment to all of the uh, Jewish people. Furthermore, the people knew that there was a plot among the leadership to kill Jesus. Um, in John 7:25, some of them from Jerusalem said, "Is this not he whom they seek to kill?" Matthew 21:45, we read now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They got a little hot and bothered about that in verse 46. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. See, the multitudes were with Jesus, not with the uh, leadership. So they had a, uh, po- a strong popular opinion of Jesus. And Mark, uh, let me see, Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Uh, in Mark eleven eighteen, we read, And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Now, what was their motivation? Their motivation was a power motivation. They saw a legitimate threat from Jesus. And I, I pointed out not long ago that... Um, that among the religious leaders, among the uh, Pharisees and among the Sadducees, 
all told, they didn't have more than probably ten or fifteen thousand uh, members of those two groups in in uh, uh, Judea and Galilee at that particular time, and yet. Uh, among the followers of Jesus, it wouldn't take long to overcome that. And by especially by the early part of Acts, there's four, five, six, seven times as many Christians within the first few weeks as there are Pharisees or Sadducees. So their power was clearly threatened. Uh, Jesus clearly made them feel uncomfortable. Um, passages like John eleven forty seven to 53, I know that's a little small for some of your eyes, but I wanted to get it all on one page. And um, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council, and um, they're just trying to figure out what to do about Jesus because this man works signs. If we leave him alone, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation, in verse 48. Then one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he has no idea what he's implying there. He's just thinking that if we can execute Jesus and get this rabble-rouser off the scene, then things will smooth over with Rome uh, for a while. Uh, Sanhedrin uh, continued to plot against uh, Jesus. Uh, They were filled with envy. Matthew 27, 18 states that Pilate knew that they, that is the Sanhedrin, had handed Jesus over because of envy. In Mark eleven eighteen, it's because of fear. The scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Now, if you're a liberal, what you just said is, ah, see, the Bible contradicts itself. It, it, over here, they say it's because of fear, and over here, it's because of envy. It's both, people. Don't. It's not either or. That's you, you, it's so silly the way they operate. Um, but that's typical liberal uh, methodology, as they would say, see, that's a big contradiction in Scripture. So uh, it's not. They, they're, they're full of fear. They're full of envy. They're full of power lust. All those things are operating together uh, at, at the same time. So it comes back to this emotional scene where Pilate turns Jesus over to the people, and they say, well, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Now, this violates, to, to, if this were true, if this, if this were the real implication, it violates uh, Jewish law. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 16 in the Torah, it states, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, or children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. And in Ezekiel 18, 4, for every living soul belongs to me. The father as well as the son, both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. So you see... Early church fathers who got sucked into anti-Semitism were biblically ignorant and and hermeneutically impoverished. They could not interpret their way out of a wet paper bag, and because of that, they brought this horrible cancer into Christianity known as as Christian uh, anti-Semitism. Thousands of Jews were supporters of Jesus, you never hear anybody talk about Joseph of Arimathea who provided the grave uh, where Jesus was buried. You never hear about Nicodemus, who's one of the chief Pharisees uh, at at the time, and uh, his support uh, for Jesus. In Jewish sources from the time, we also learn that the Jews recognized that from that time that they were culpable. Now, what you hear in, Ju- in, in among Jewish writers today... Because, see, the arrogance 
of modern man since the Enlightenment is that we know more than they did. See, they may have written it down that they knew that they killed Jesus, but they didn't understand that they just did that because the Christians had already made them feel guilty about it. And so they're just in res- doing this in response to, to the Christians. Well, you know, that, how, how disrespectful they can be of their elders. They just want to make everything fit their little, you know, phony, non-historical approach. Uh, the Talmud uh, has traditions. For example, um, uh, in Sanhedrin 43a, talks about the Christians. Now, this is in the Babylonian Talmud. In the Jerusalem Talmud, which was which is what had uh, uh, was was primarily read and promoted and copied in the West, this paragraph has been exp- had been expunged several centuries ago. Uh, but in uh, Sanhedrin 43a, uh, there's a very negative, very negative statements made about the menim. These, that's the term for the heretics, uh, and that is a term that was used to apply to um, uh, to Christians. Uh, there are traditions also, according to Pesachim 57a, were very hostile to the house of Annas because they understood that it was the house of Annas that brought some of this upon them and that that high priestly house uh, should fail. Uh, Josephus also reported that uh, the, the, the later high priest, Annas, who uh, was uh, one who was responsible for indicting James, the leader in the early church, uh, the brother of John, often misidentified as the brother of Jesus, um, that um, when uh, he reigned and uh, was in the position of high priest between the administrations of Festus and Albinus, who were governors of Judea, that he used that uh, this uh, rise of the power of the Christians as an excuse for uh, bringing James to trial and also uh, executing him. And it's a parallel to the trial of, uh, of Jesus. And this really does reflect uh, the real perversion and horrors that were going on in the Jewish culture and society in the mid-first century. Uh, I, I really learned a lot reading this new book by um, Simon Sebag Montefiore on the history of Jerusalem about just how horrible things were in first century uh, Israel, in, in Jerusalem, which is which fits the picture of why uh, we believe that God would bring judgment upon the Jews. It wasn't just because they rejected Jesus. It was because in all of their uh, rejection of God, only a small segment of the religious leaders were religious. Much of the Jewish population was secular, not unlike today. And um, and so that uh, that judgment uh, was, was brought upon them in, in uh, accordance with what uh, Moses predicted in Deuteronomy. Uh, in uh, the Sanhedrin tractate, uh, <clears throat> emphasizes that um, uh, Jesus was put to death by a Jewish court for the crimes of sorcery and sedition, and so they clearly accepted that. Uh, Jesus, Jewish folk literature produced a uh, an apocryphal uh, biography of Jesus called the Toledot uh, Yeshua. It's traced back to at least as early as the uh, early 4th century, which and it assigned responsibility for the death of Jesus to the, to the Jews. Josephus assigned responsibility 
uh, to the Jews. And as another fact, I pointed out earlier that, that if you talk to many Jews today, they'll say, well, the Gospels are anti-Semitic because John writes and he accuses the Jews of crucifying Jesus. But John is using the term the Jews the same way Josephus does. It was the idiom of the first century to refer to a certain group that opposed you, the group of leadership, as the Jews. It's not, it wasn't a negative racist uh, term. It was simply the way they spoke. And we can't impose our 20th century understanding of that as a, as a, as a possible racist epithet and impose that back into the first century. That is historical revisionism at its absolute worst. There's nothing anti-Semitic in the Gospels. They're written by Jews. They're written about the Jewish Messiah, and there are they represent tens of thousands of Jews that follow Jesus. And how can any of that be anti-Semitic? It's not. So uh, Jesus' uh, death is... Uh, uh, at the result of the will of God. And the, the Gospels, in fact, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus predicts his death and that it's at the, uh, at the will of God. And that because of this, because it is God's will, then this is the way in which, uh, the way in which salvation is provided. Uh, from from all through the Old Testament, there is a talk about all human beings, Jews and Gentiles alike, are guilty of sin. First Kings eight forty six states, "There is no one who does not sin." Ecclesiastes seven twenty says, "For there is not a righteous person on the earth who does good and does not sin." Isaiah sixty four five and six says, "We are all like one who is unclean, and all our un- all our righteousness are like filthy rags." The, what is needed is forgiveness, and this is exactly what Jesus' death was all about. When he died, he said, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what." They do. And when the uh, gospel writers, when the apostles in the early church are preaching the gospel, they are emphasizing to their hearers again and again that if they accept Jesus, there is complete forgiveness of sin. So blaming the Jewish people was not what they were saying. They were blaming the people who were actually responsible, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and the religious leaders. They are not uh, addressing the um, uh, Jewish people as a whole. Now, we, I want to take just a couple of minutes, and I want to put an article up here on the screen. Some of you are not going to be able to see this very well. Others of you have young eyes, and you can see this better. Uh, this is an article that is written by... Um, uh, a. I didn't get the author's name up here, but he is he, he's a he's a um, uh, Roman Catholic priest, and he was an advisor to an off-Broadway play called *The Last Days of Judas Iscariot*, uh, written by the playwright Stephen Adley Gurgis and directed by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and. Um, uh, he was brought in as an advisor because they didn't want to get caught up in the same trap and. Be, uh, had the claim of anti-Semitism brought against them like uh, Mel Gibson had had. But he makes some interesting comments in here. He says, um, uh, critics of, of the movie contended that by making Pontius Pilate appear as thoughtful and, and as a thoughtful and conflicted official, the movie tipped the balance of responsibility to the Jewish leaders at the time. 
any attempt to remove guilt from the Jewish leaders amounted to a... Um, uh, the movie's supporters, on the other hand, contended that any attempt to remove guilt from the Jewish leaders amounted to a whitewashing of history. That was the, uh, that was the conflict. He goes on to say, one problem with the public conversation that surrounded the Passion of the Christ was the frequent presentation of a dichotomy between reason and faith. Now, I wanted to point that out at the beginning. I made that same point. What he does is he accuses, um, uh, he, he accuses people in the public conversation as making this dichotomy. He makes it all the way through this article. He's, a, he's more guilty than anybody else of making this dichotomy between reason and faith. Faith is in this upper story realm that is quasi-mystical, and we can't know God or know what God has done because we're in this lower story where we can only know our experiences, where Kantian epistemology keeps us from ever knowing anything objective or anything true. And so what's happened historically is we've separated faith and reason, and we can only know reason, but faith is just this existential uh, leap. He says, some on the secular left contended that religious faith necessarily blinds a person to the need for serious historical scholarship. See, historical scholarship happens at the lower story because that's what we can see and analyze. But what they mean by historical scholarship isn't what you and I mean by historical scholarship. It means going into the Gospels and finding out what the various sources are because it can't be what it claims to be. How would they know that unless they're omniscient? Uh, they, they just reject all historical evidence. So they say that is religious people are willful, and then on the other hand, say some on the secular left contended that religious faith necessarily blinds a person to the need for serious historical scholarship. That is, religious people are willfully ignorant of facts or just idiots. That's the claim of the secular left. Uh, the problem is that, that what they don't understand is that the scholarship in the Christian community goes far beyond the scholarship in the secular community because we believe there is truth that is knowable. They don't believe you can know anything that's true. So how can, how can that be good scholarship? Um, so this is, this is what happens in the secular realm, why things are such a mess. So some on the religious right, on the other hand, counter that, that, counter that appeals to historical evidence betray a lack of faith. I don't know anybody in the conservative evangelical camp that rejects historical evidence. In fact, it's the conservative evangelical fundamentalist right that is constantly coming out and emphasizing the historicity of the text and coming up with archaeological evidence and historical evidence that substantiates the claims of, of Scripture. So he's misrepresenting, these, my comments are in blue, he, he's misrepresenting the religious right. He gets away with this by using uh, the statement, some. See, he says, some on the religious right. So you can get away with that. How many? One? Two? Two people in backwoods Appalachia? And he no documentation whatsoever. He just makes his claim. He says, um, I went on to comment, the, the reality is that there are some fringe elements that are this way, but the vast majority of evangelicals and fundamentalists have put an extremely strong emphasis on historical evidences for centuries, but especially since the rise of institutionalized skepticism since the mid uh, 1800s. He makes another statement. He calls this a false dichotomy, but then he does it many times. He says, uh, um, the, the majority of Christian denominations have long recognized the importance of serious scripture scholarship. 
as well as the need for using historical tools. That's historical criticism. That's code word for taking the Bible apart and putting it back together so that it isn't what it originally claims to be. He says, underlying this recognition is the belief that Scripture is one of the primary means through which God is revealed. See, he's a Roman Catholic priest, so he's got three ways that you know truth. You know truth through general revelation, special revelation, and the traditions of the church. For Protestants, God reveals himself only through special revelation, general revelation, and special revelation interprets and defines general revelation. He then goes on to say, referring to the Second Vatican Council, the statement that the Catholic bishops made at Vatican II, uh, sacred tradition and sacred scripture form one sacred deposit of the word of God. That's one out of how many? This reemphasis on serious scripture scholarship, give me a break, Long the domain of dedicated Protestant theologians, well, he got that right, philologists and historians, led to a flowering of the Catholic biblical scholarship in the last few decades. But it still rejects the basic claims of of Scripture. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, he said, uh, referring to uh, European history, Jews were murdered in the name of the church and exiled from their homes. Both anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism were also, as noted before, given expression and encouraged by medieval passion plays sponsored by Catholic churches and organizations. Now, that's something in our background as Protestants we don't relate to. But these these passion plays that went on in every village, every town, every burg in, 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 in the Middle Ages became an excuse to fire up the masses and go punish the Jews every year at, at, at Easter. And so this was a time of great horror in the Jewish community because they knew what was uh, what was coming. Uh, let me see, skip down here. He says, uh, what scholars call the historical critical approach, that's what he refers to as doing history. What scholars call the historical critical approach also makes sense intellectually, but only if you buy into pagan assumptions. Uh, but put simply, a completely literalist or fundamentalist interpretation is an impossibility. Only if you distort it. And we'll see from his examples. This is a, one of the main examples I wanted you to go, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop. He says, um, a completely literalist or fundamentalist interpretation is an impossibility. It was not having a completely literalist, fundamentalist interpretation that led to all of this. See how he's calling right, wrong, and wrong, right. He's calling black, white, and white, black. Um, he, He goes on to say the proof for this is simple. The Gospels are not always consistent. Only if you look at it this way. Uh, the statement reveals the author's presuppositions, I, I comment here, against the Bible and against literal interpretation. What he, what, what he will give as examples of impossible literal or fundamentalist interpretation are just bogus. He creates a, a, a complete straw man argument. What he's doing is he's, he's, he's putting up something that nobody claims, and then he shoots it down. Well, anybody can do that, especially politicians. Uh, first of all, he says... Jesus makes only one journey to Jerusalem in the Synoptic Gospels while he makes several in John. That's a liberal claim. Well, what this denies and completely ignores is that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very close to one another in the way they tell the story about Jesus, and so they're called synoptic, like synonyms. And uh, But their purpose is not to give a full biography or all the details about Jesus' life. 
So for, from their perspective, they're not trying to write down everything about how many times Jesus went to Jerusalem. So John, who is taking a different approach to the life of Jesus, builds the life of Jesus around his three trips to Jerusalem. But the writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke aren't claiming that Jesus made one and only one trip to Jerusalem. And uh, uh, even, even John doesn't say that Jesus made three. There's a possibility that, he, that there was a fourth trip there. So this is a, a, a complete fabrication. Um, it would be, I, I, this, I didn't turn this into blue text, but this is my comment here. Um, I said, for example, over the past several years, I've made a number of trips to Nacogdoches, Texas, uh, where I went to university. In a biography, someone might only include the two times I went there to preach the funerals of Colonel and Martha Callahan. Someone else might come along uh, with another thematic agenda in mind, writing my biography, and might mention every trip I made if they were emphasizing relationships, I, ongoing relationships I had with men I was in ROTC with in college. Different purposes mean you, you, you focus on different facts. doesn't mean one is right and one is wrong. The second claim that this writer makes is this. He said, the story of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Matthew describes Mary and Joseph as living in Bethlehem, fleeing to Egypt and then moving for the first time to Nazareth. Notice that, for the first time to Nazareth. While Luke has the two living originally in Nazareth, traveling to Bethlehem in time for the birth and then returning home again. Mark and John have nothing of such traditions. Mark and John don't talk about the birth of Jesus at all. But he makes it sound as if they're contradicting. They don't, they don't believe that, which is absurd. They're just not focusing on that. It's not part of their, their, their theme. Uh, the Matthew account, if you read Matthew 1 and 2, it says nothing at all about where Mary and Joseph lived prior to the birth of Jesus. The account in Matthew 2 simply begins by saying that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Matthew chapter 1, we're just told that Mary's pregnant, she's a virgin, Joseph is upset, and the angel appears to Joseph and says, don't be upset because this is all from God. It doesn't say where that happened. It doesn't say that it didn't happen in Bethlehem. It doesn't say that it didn't happen in Nazareth. There's no contradiction. But this is how the liberal liberal mind works. Um, then he says, uh, more seriously, some of the resurrection stories is, are substantially different. In some accounts, the risen Christ appears as a material being. In others, he can walk through walls. See, here he's got a false dichotomy. It's one or the other. But he doesn't understand this is a resurrection body. It has, it has aspects that are similar to our present material bodies and aspects that are different because it's not the same kind of material body. So it can pass through walls or not. It's like the angels. It can change itself. The angels in the Old Testament could eat and drink and sleep. So, so this, it, it, he, it, because he's not letting the Bible define its own terms and speak for itself, and he, his assumption is the Bible can't be right, he's going to always find a contradiction uh, or, er, or error. Um, Again, here he asserts the view that different views of Jesus means that they're contradictory views, so, so that his implication is it doesn't need to be historically accurate. This is the, the kind of uh, slippery stuff we often find. He says, the first century writers of the Gospels presented different views of Jesus. Different doesn't have to mean contradictory. It can mean different as in complementary. 
but he's presenting this as if they're contradictory. They, they present different views of Jesus Christ and did so with different communities, concerns, and readers in mind. So in arguing about historical accuracy, it's not enough to simply to say it's in the Bible. See, he's indicating that religious truth and historical accuracy don't have to go together. And the point that historical Christianity and the Bible itself makes is that God works in and through history. If the historical events aren't true, then the religious truth associated with it isn't true. You can't separate the two. But that's what he does. And there's all the, always this innuendo. Uh, he says, in mainstream Christian theology, reason and faith are not opposed to one another. That's true. Both are seen as expressions of God's, as if they're both, as if they're two separate entities. So I, it, it can go on. I mean, it, it's a great little tool for learning how to, uh, how to uh, think critically when you read through different things and to see how the liberal mind twists and distorts things. So anyhow... The truth is, Jesus died because God sent him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It does not matter whether the Romans or the Jews or the Edomites or the or Europeans or South Americans or Chinese or Indians crucified him. Whatever people he had come to would have crucified him because that was God's plan so that we could be saved. And all mankind is guilty of his death. That is, that is the point, not the Jewish people. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to let us reflect upon these things and think about this important issue and also to reflect upon the fact that, that in the Jewish community this is a highly sensitive issue. And as we uh, talk to Jewish friends and communicate with them, we should be aware that this is a, a deeply embedded concern and fear uh, because uh, unfortunately, Christians have used this as an excuse for um, anti-Semitism for, for centuries, and we need to be aware of that. We also need to be aware that, uh, of the truth, that the Bible does not teach that the Jewish people uh, were alone responsible, but only that a small segment of Jewish leaders were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ along with Roman uh, leaders and especially Herod and Pilate. Father, we pray that you would uh, uh, help us to just appreciate the fact that we have a salvation that is perfect and complete and that we have this because of your predetermined plan to provide a Savior for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.